The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. And everything works exactly like it is supposed to. Perfectly, no glitches, nothing goes wrong, everything works according to plan. The best thing that could possibly happen is that I get to walk around safely on solid ground again, like I am right now. Why do people do that? I don't really get that. They tell me it's because of the adrenaline rush. Maybe that's the case, I don't know, I only see the terror in it. I'm trusting myself to a parachute. You jump out of a plane and you trust yourself to a parachute. And for the few seconds between the time when you jump out and you put yourself at danger and the parachute deploys and you're relatively safe, anything could go wrong there. That's not fun to me. Lots of things could go wrong between the putting yourself at risk and the being safely delivered by the parachute and then ultimately to the ground. I'm going to avoid that kind of trauma. Unfortunately, we cannot avoid all trauma in life. We can't. In any number of ways, at any moment, we may find ourselves at risk, even in mortal danger. Plenty of things, not of our own doing. And the gap between right now and being safely delivered, that gap is often hard to figure out, hard to know the duration of, and hard to endure. How are we to wait, to make it through, and strangely even to thrive in that gap? How are we to do that? What are we to do when we face the general hardships of life and deliverance has not yet come? That's another way of asking the basic issue here in the book of Habakkuk. We've been in this book now for a couple of weeks. He strikes this basic note every time. This morning as we turn to chapter 2, we come to the final part of the dialogue, the back and forth conversation between God and Habakkuk. Habakkuk speaks God, then Habakkuk, and now hear God again this morning. In chapter 1, he cried out to God as as he looked around, the prophet looked around Jerusalem and Judea where he lived, and he saw rampant wickedness everywhere. And he said, God, how can you do nothing about this? What's going on? That was his cry. And then God spoke and God answered. He was no longer silent or inactive. But his action was not exactly encouraging. He was said that he was summoning Babylon, a wicked nation, to come and to destroy this old religious system. This system that had proven itself so thoroughly inadequate in establishing and maintaining righteousness and justice. He's going to bring Babylon up to destroy that. He's going to deal with the problem. But that answer created another problem for Habakkuk. We saw that last week. If God's inactivity had been the problem to start, now God's activity was the problem. How could he deal with wickedness by establishing wickedness? How can he do that? How can he wipe out wickedness amongst his people by bringing in foreigners who surely are more wicked and putting them in power? That's what he was going to do. He said so himself. How can he do that? That doesn't make any sense. That's his second complaint. The problem is that he's got these two strands of reality that he can't quite put together. He's got this one rope over here, this declared nature of God, 
and this other rope, the, the things that he sees in life, and they don't quite connect. And so we saw in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, he kind of runs up to this tower and he says, God, what's the deal? Help. Answer this, would you? And he waits there. He doesn't just throw this at God and then stomp away angry as if he knows the answer. He admits, I don't know how this works. Help. Connect this. That brings us to our text for this morning. Habakkuk 2, verses 2 to 5, God's response. Let me read that. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, Habakkuk 2, verses 2 to 5. And the Lord answered me, it's Habakkuk, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Our passage for this morning. Verse 2 begins, And the Lord answered me. God's not going to speak, and he's preparing to deliver a vision to Habakkuk. We're going to look at this. We're going to clear up a couple of, of uh, difficult points before we move on to two main, larger, overarching points. So walk through the text here for a second. He says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. The prophet is to write down what is coming. Evidence here, again, that God's answer to his particular question is meant to be spoken to more than just Habakkuk. We saw that in chapter 1 as well, when he answered him in the plural, you all. Well, here he tells him to write it down. Habakkuk asked, and the answer is for more people than just Habakkuk. Write it down. It's going to spread far and wide. That's the thrust of the second half of that verse. You see that phrase there about the running reader? That little phrase has gathered a couple of different interpretations. Sometimes people look at that second half of the verse as if Habakkuk was supposed to basically make a great big billboard to write this vision out in really large letters and display it somewhere so that the person who's running by you know, kind of hurrying through life, we'll still be able to glance at it, read it, and get it. It's one way people understand this. Another way is that people look at the running and see it more metaphorically, like something moving successfully or quickly through something else, like a, a, a rumor runs through a crowd, for instance, to move effectively through something. So in, in this understanding, Habakkuk is to write the vision down, so that people will read it and then we'll be able to move effectively and quickly and well through their life. So they'll run through life. Maybe, that could be right, but I think a better way to understand this is to recognize the connection between this phrase and a verse in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23, 21, we see a parallel statement there in Jeremiah where prophesying is connected to running. The one running is someone carrying a message. He's going to 
carry something, and the reading is the public proclamation of that message. If you're looking at the NIV, you're in luck here. NIV's translation is not literal, it doesn't translate every single word literally, but it does accurately get the idea when it translates, make it plain so that a herald may run with it. A herald, that is someone who runs out carrying a message far and wide. That's what he's getting at here in this section. The vision from God is to be plainly written down on tablets so that it can be carried and heralded and declared to people everywhere, geographically everywhere, and then on down through time as well. And why does it need to be permanently preserved? Well, because it's not going to be fulfilled quite yet. This message needs to be written down and passed on because it's not all about right now in Habakkuk's time. You see it there, it says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It's hastening towards the end. It will not lie. It hastens, or it yearns, or it speaks of. It's a word that's difficult to translate, but the basic idea is that it's, it's reaching out towards the future, towards the end. There's something in this vision that is forward-looking. Something down the road yet that's not quite here. It is surely coming, though. The text underlines that word, surely. There's an emphasis there. It is surely coming. Don't doubt it. It's not a lie. It's not delaying from God's perspective. It may look like it from ours, but it is coming. So write it down and pass it on so the people in coming generations can know. At this point, I think it might be natural to ask, what exactly is the vision? It's a little difficult to figure out in the text, too. I think that chapter 3 is actually the vision. Chapter 3 is a great panoramic display of God coming and doing things. He reads like a vision. And then chapter 2 is the public proclamation of the message of the vision. What I mean there is that Habakkuk sees something in a trance or in a vision, and then he says, and what I need to go out into the street and preach is chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. And then what we have right here in verses 4 and 5 is a thumbnail of that. If you know on a, on a computer screen or maybe on the internet, you see a little bitty picture called a thumbnail, and you click on it, and then the whole thing goes like that. I think that's what's going on here. A number of commentators think this as well, that we get a little picture in verses 4 and 5, and then it goes like this from 6 and following. So what we're going to be unpacking in the following weeks is this vision. That's the framework that I'm working under. But really, I want to tell you that just so you know where I'm coming from. But it's not that critical that we be able to identify verse 6 is in the vision and verse 5 is not. Because think about this for a second. It's all the Bible to us. It's all equally inspired. It's all equally God's word to us. Commentators disagree about what is and what is not the vision. That's the framework I'm working under. But if you disagree, that's okay. It's not that critical. The point is the vision is coming. I think he summarizes it here in verses 4 and 5, beginning with the word behold, something that you can see. He makes a pronouncement then about two general types of people. First part of verse 4 is the proud person, the puffed up one who stands before God unrighteous, 
whose soul is not upright, and the second half is the righteous one, lives by faith. There are two different kinds of people here, and this transcends just the Babylonian problem, and it becomes universal. All people everywhere fall into one of these two categories. And then in verse 5, the second part of this vision, I'm not going to talk very much about this, but I think verse 5 is expressing that the reign of the proud here on earth is going to continue for a while. It's not ending right now. Sometime in the future it will. Right now it's going to continue on, just like verse 5 says. That's the text. Brief sketch of it. A couple of little difficulties there, giving you my resolution to them. We're going to look more at that in the coming weeks, but what right now, what we need to focus on this morning is what right now does God have for us here in this text? Verses 2 to 5. We're faced with trauma and turmoil, trouble here in this life, for we are and the deliverance has not yet come. It's, it's still for the future sometime. We're trying to deal with this. What do we do? How do we manage that? I think there are a couple of truths here, two truths in particular, that can help fortify our hearts, tell us how to deal with this. The first, and by far the foremost, that this passage presents is found in verse 4. Genuine faith leads to life. Genuine faith. Underlying genuine that is wholehearted, steadfast, persistent, humble surrender of your whole self to the Lord leads to life. It's the main point of this passage. It's the main point of the whole book. Faith amidst hardship is what God is urging on us. Obviously, we have to spend the most time here talking about this. Genuine faith leads to life. It's in the last part of verse 4, but the righteous shall live by faith. Consider each of these main words here in this phrase. The righteous by faith and shall live. I'm going to start with shall live. The tense of the word there emphasizes continually shall live. It's an ongoing thing. Day after day, throughout one's physical life here on earth, you can live. What does it mean for a physically living person to live. What are we talking about there? What kind of life does he have in view? Now, obviously he's talking about spiritual life. All people are born dead in sin. Physically, alive, naturally, we're all breathing, we're all functioning, we're all walking around. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. That is, alienated from God, separated from Him, dead to Him, under His wrath. The Bible is abundantly, solemnly clear about this. But it is possible to live again, to be alive again to God. That's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about the manner in which one conducts life. We're talking about having life, possessing it. To live again to God, to live no longer under His wrath, but instead under His mercy and as an object of His love. That is possible again, to live reconnected with Him, joined to Him in your soul, fellowshipping with Him moment by moment, growing to love what He loves and to think like He thinks. That is all possible again. This is life. 
The rest of it is just walking around and breathing. This is life. Forgiveness of sin. Communion with God. No longer a stranger, but a friend. It is the heart of joy. It's what we were made for. To be able to see Him with the eyes of our heart. To commune with Him. To be friends with Him. It's what eternity is going to be like for the righteous. And it's given to us now here. Just a little foretaste of it. By the work of the Spirit within us. It is all possible. It doesn't end when our bodies die. It's rather heightened. It's life, life eternal. Spiritual life. And he tells Habakkuk, and Habakkuk clearly writes it down for us to see and to know that this continual life with God comes by faith. By faith alone. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall obtain this life by faith. It's not automatic. It does not come to everyone. We don't start out there comes by faith. So what is faith? It's an important question. Another way to translate that word, you might see it in a footnote in your Bible, is faithfulness. The idea is steadfastness. Feet planted in cement. Unwavering loyalty, devotion, commitment, allegiance, trust. It has an intellectual component. You have to know what in the world you're talking about before you trust it. It does have an intellectual component, but it is not only intellectual. We get that really confused in English a lot. We use the English language and we use the word believe because we also use the word believe in a purely intellectual sense. You ask, what's two plus two? I believe that's four. That's purely intellectual. That is not what we're talking about here. There is an intellectual element, but it is far more than that. It is internal heart, trust, and commitment. Full surrender of self. In contexts like this in the Bible, when we're talking about that, what it means is a, picture this in your mind, a coming to God, a coming to Him naked. That's with nothing else. A coming to Him naked, helpless, surrendered, humble, crying out to Him for mercy. Bringing nothing to the table under no delusion that you're going to strike any deals. Not confused that you, the creature, have anything to offer or anything to barter with in regards to the Creator and how He responds to you and how He judges you. Faith sets all of that aside. Faith is not one foot in and one foot out. Faith is not, I trust this and this. We're talking about wholehearted commitment to one thing alone. Steadfast commitment to God. That's what Habakkuk understood, what he meant when he wrote this down. But we now, centuries later, understand far more than him. We talk about one a commitment to one thing, to God. Well, we know more about what that is. God means for us to steadfastly, wholeheartedly commit to him by steadfastly, wholeheartedly clinging to Christ, God come in flesh calling out to Him for mercy. He answers that in one way, Jesus, the only way. To say, I cling to God but not to Jesus, is to not cling to God in faith. 
There was only one way. There was only one thing to hold to. Christ. We must cling to Him if we seek life. Don't misunderstand faith, this, this commitment involved in this faith to be some temporary passing thing. Some years back I was involved in some campus ministry and another woman and I were interacting with some fraternity and sorority women. We were talking about relationships and, and the topic of commitment. And one woman said, I'm committed to my boyfriend until I decide to break up with him. And I thought, wow, big deal. Everybody is committed to something until they decide to not be committed to it anymore. That's not commitment. That is certainly not what we're talking about here. I hold to Christ until I decide not to hold to him anymore. The faith in view here is a whole giving of yourself. A trusting of nothing else. Such that if, if by some chance Christ proved wrong, you would be lost. Paul talks about that when he talks about faith in Christ and his resurrection. He says, if the resurrection didn't happen, we are to be pitied above all fools, above anybody else in the world, because we've entrusted ourselves wholly to this. We're not just testing the water, we've jumped in. Wholehearted commitment. These words are all complementary. They are redundant. Listen to them. Steadfast. Wholehearted. Commitment. Faith, trust, surrender, belief, they're all communicating the same thing. The only way that one can find life is by giving oneself wholly to Jesus. The only way. I strike no bargains. I make no stipulations. I trust you if... I find life only when I come to Him completely in faith. And if you do that by faith, you shall live. You shall. Heart full of peace. Suffering perhaps, but ever rejoicing. This is a fortifying word to you because it tells you that amidst the darkness in life, when you're hung out there feeling like you're just kind of falling out of an airplane with the, no parachute even, let alone on the ground. It tells you that at that moment of greatest fear and greatest danger, you can still live vibrantly. You can commune with God at all times by faith, by trusting Him, by saying, Lord, I don't understand. I can't see any further than right here. But I know You. And I hold fast to You. I trust You. And He will sustain your heart. He'll give you life. Moment by moment, even in the darkness. That is a fortifying truth. And we need to remember that. Because trouble is going to come. It will. It will come. Live depending on Him. You can have that kind of faith. You'll have that kind of life. But I am aware that there are folks here this morning who don't have access to that life. can't have it because you're not righteous. 
It's a third word there. Let me consider that word for a moment. What does the word righteous mean? This is a legal term. It's a term of the court. It's not speaking either positively or, or negatively about any feelings or any outward appearances or, or any demeanor or anything like that. It's describing how a person stands before the law, before a judge. We all know that in court you can have a man dressed in a thousand dollar suit be guilty and a homeless man off the street be innocent. His outward appearance, his education, his net worth, none of that matters. One man is righteous and one man is unrighteous. We're talking about here in this word how a person stands before the judge. Glory of glories. It is possible for you and I to stand before the judge of all as righteous. Forgiven, clean, pure, in the right. It's remarkable. Considering who we really are, it is much more than remarkable. It is stunning. We all start out equally unrighteous. We all are born fallen in sin, born with a corrupted inner nature, twisted by the effects of the fall, drawn off by all the allurements in the world. It's, it's outside us and it's inside us. It's in our thoughts and our words and our deeds and our desires. We're all bent, twisted. We don't just do sin, we are sinners in the core of our very being. We are by nature in rebellion against God even when we aren't thinking about Him. In fact, that thoughtlessness itself is good evidence of our sinful natures. We are rebels pursuing life in our own ways after our own rules, unrighteous, and look around, the world is an utter wreck because of it. Our lives are an utter wreck because of it. We try to cover it up with, with some outward veneer, and we, we dress up well, we live in a nice house, but inside we know emptiness like nobody's business. And outside we know conflict everywhere. We're unrighteous. The type of life is captured in the other half of verse 4. The first half, it is the proud, puffed-up person. Now, don't just think of pride as like flagrant arrogance captured by an, an athlete or, or maybe like by Muhammad Ali saying, I'm king of the world. That's one kind of pride, yes, but that's an extreme example. Most pride is nothing like that. The essence of pride simply says, my will be done on earth as it should be in heaven. My will, me, I'm front and center. I'm the filter through which everything passes. I'm the judge. And plenty of very meek and reserved people, in fact, all of us live like that. Pride is a problem for all of us. It's the fundamental problem of, of human nature. In verse 4, it's particularly capturing the unrighteous person that half of the world not literally that half but that portion of people soul is is not straight it's crooked it's not upright within them even as you sit there right now 
and you disagree with me as I tell you what the Bible says, proving the Bible's point. You are the final judge. You're evaluating the Bible by your own standards. I don't tell you that to make fun of you or to, or to like jab you. I tell you that so that you'll know. So you'll know who you really are. It's important because it's a sign that your soul is not upright within you. It is crooked. It's bent against him and it must change. But it cannot change by simply trying to do better because we will never be able to do better enough. This is not about counting up sins versus righteous deeds and weighing it out. And if you come out plus one on the good side, you're okay. It's about being totally, entirely pure. And that will never happen to any of us. We've got to be changed in some other way. We can't change our own hearts on the inside. We can't change our being. We remain crooked under God's judgment. This is a dangerous place to be, and the Bible is crystal clear about what remains for people like that. It leads us under His judgment, receiving the just punishment of this rebellion, the wrath and the curse of God. It is not good news. It is the worst of all possible news. But it's true. The good news, though, is that God has made a way to become righteous again. He's made a way. He himself came to earth and he took on a body. Christ. That's why he's the one who must be clung to in faith. Christ came to earth. God eternal took on a body and went to the cross and as he hung there dying the righteous in the place of the unrighteous who deserved to be there. As he died, he provided payment for the sin of all who will trust him. In faith come to him and cling to him. Will you? Will you? Will you come to Him in faith and trust Him? He is sufficient payment for sin. He is glorious sufficient payment for sin. That is good news and I plead with you, be made righteous by faith. By faith alone. Be made right before God. Come to experience life Reject all the other things that you trust. Reject your own efforts. Reject your own way of thinking. In essence, put aside pride. To refuse to come to Him is to embrace pride and say, I will not. You remain in the first half of verse 4. Don't stay there, please. Please. Come to Him in faith and be made righteous. And if you already have, hold fast to Him in faith and know life amidst all the darkness. That's the first heart-fortifying truth in this passage. There's a second. 
Verse 3, primarily, the Lord graciously speaks to His people. When we cry out, how long, O Lord? Will this go on forever? He says, His response, I myself will bring an end to wickedness. I myself will bring an end to wickedness. I think verse 5, as I said, is saying it's going to go on for a little while longer, just like it is right now. But I myself will bring an end to all of this. This is his word of encouragement to us. And it's meant to enlarge our perspective and help us to look ahead, to look down the road and to see the end and to see him seated high and exalted over all things. We've seen this before. We've talked about it, this end that's coming in both previous passages that we've looked at. And we're going to be talking about it more in the future. God keeps bringing this up throughout this whole book. He keeps bringing it up. It would seem that there is something important, something valuable in lifting up our eyes and seeing the end coming. We're going to keep talking about that. This morning, though, the unique twist on it is its emphasis that we have here on God's personal control of and activity in time. Notice how verse 3 highlights the Lord's personal involvement by first emphasizing His control of time. The vision awaits the appointed time. The appointed time. God is about to issue a statement that is future-oriented. It's looking down the road. It's not yet all here. Now, it's, it's connected to the future and the present, the vision is about righteous people and proud people. And it's always been the case throughout all of history. There are always righteous people and proud people. So it's tied right here to the present, but it's primarily reaching into the future. It's not all here yet. When is that going to happen? Well, it's more clearly seen in the expanded verses that follow from verse 6 and following. We'll talk about that in the future. But when it's going to happen, this, this passage tells us, is at the appointed time. Well, appointed by whom? That's obvious, appointed by God. The one true God. The one who was doing a work in Habakkuk's day that was unbelievable. The one who appointed, declared Babylon as a judgment, called them up as a reproof. This same one has appointed a time at which this all will be brought to completion. He is intimately involved in this, making time and space first, and then making decisions about time and space, about how all of this plays out. He is in sovereign control over it. The appointed time is coming. The end is drawing near. It's not just a goal here he's talking about. It's the end these two terms, the appointed time and the end, they're loaded terms. They're eschatological language. That is, language about the end times. Referring to a point in the future when the climax of the great story of redemption occurs. Everything's been building throughout all of time and there's going to be a point when it all comes together. That's the end. The appointed end. If it seems slow, Wait for it. It is surely coming. It's not going to delay. It is coming, I promise. Rest in that. Underline it for sure. It depends on God who does not lie. He is going to bring it. He himself will come. 
And notice I said, He will come. Now, formally, if you look very closely at it, grammatically, the text seems to imply it will come. It's the pronoun that's repeatedly referring back to the vision. The vision will come and not delay. Wait for the vision, etc. And while that is formally, grammatically true, that's not what we're meant to understand. Think about it like this for a second. If you said to me, hey, did you read that magazine? And I said, yes, it was pretty interesting. It was pretty interesting. I don't mean the, the cover and the binding and the paper was interesting. Of course, I mean the contents of it were interesting. They were interesting. So I say it, but we both understand that I mean not the package, but the contents. Same thing's going on here. We aren't actually to await the vision. Habakkuk wasn't supposed to wait for the vision. The vision's coming in two or three seconds. It's coming right up. And now for us, the vision is written down. We can read it. We're not awaiting the package. We're awaiting the contents of the package. We're awaiting a time when there is a final reckoning for this proud and this righteous person in verse 4. And that happens, that time comes when he comes. If you have the NIV, you'll see this reflected in your footnote. He seems slow in coming. Wait for him. Wait patiently for him. Wait persistently for him. He will not delay. He's going to come. Verse 17 asks, will Babylon keep on destroying the nations forever without anybody stopping them? And the answer is, for a little while, yes, but not ultimately, for I'm going to come. In fact, the Hebrew can just as easily be read, he, as it. It's the same word. When Greek scholars, before the coming of Jesus, translated this passage, they translated it as he. He will come. And we're going to find that the New Testament also understands it as he. So there's a vision that's coming, but we're really supposed to understand the content of the vision is coming. And that happens when he comes. Verse 3 starts off by emphasizing the Lord's control over time. And now we see the Lord's personal involvement in the ending of time. He himself coming. So we have the time and the tool if you will. Both of them. Two things communicating to us God's personal involvement in the end of wickedness. He is not asleep at the switch. Sometimes we're tempted to think that when everything's dark out there. We wonder, why doesn't somebody turn on the lights? Is God there? Is He asleep? What's He doing? Is He distracted? No. He is appointed a time. He knows when that is. He's still in charge. And he is in charge. He's not waiting for someone else to give him an opening or to create opportunity for him. He is in charge. That's a promise held out to us. It's held out to Habakkuk. There's a time that's going to come when this is all going to be resolved. It's the same promise held out to both of us, but in a slightly different way for us. Think about this. We live in such a privileged position. Habakkuk is way back here, so to speak. As Peter talks about the prophets who are looking down through the tunnel of time, trying to figure out when the stuff that they're talking about is going to happen. Well, we live all the way over here, and we say, it happened right here. We know. We live in a tremendously 
privileged position because Habakkuk looks ahead and says, He will come, He will not delay. And we say, He has indeed come. He has come. And He has begun to deal with evil. He has begun to bring an end to it all. He went to the cross to triumph over evil, to pronounce its sentence, to destroy death itself by rising the firstborn from among the dead. He's proven that it is defeated. And He's removed from us the penalty. For those who are righteous, He's removed from us the penalty of that sinful rebellion within us. He's triumphed over evil within us. He has already come and done that, but it's not yet fully done. The same word to Habakkuk about how He is coming, it's the same word to us too. He is still coming. He will come again to fully and finally deal with evil by removing it entirely. That day is still yet to come. But brothers and sisters, it will come. Trust Him. That's the point of Hebrews chapter 10. Let's move towards the end. Would you turn with Hebrews 10? Turn to Hebrews 10 with me and look at this. The book of Hebrews is written to a very similar setting as Habakkuk. The people of God are hard-pressed. A lot of persecution going on in the book of Hebrews. And they're tempted, they're strongly tempted to let go of that God rope. Remember those two ropes that are being held in tension? They look at all that's going on in life and they are strongly tempted to let go of God. And so the writer to the, book, to the, writer of the community in the Hebrews refers to our text in Habakkuk this morning. Listen to what he says with it. Verses 37 to 39. I'm going to start in verse 35. Hebrews 10, 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. Confidence has a great reward. Don't ditch it. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and here comes our passage, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And he expresses confidence about how he, he thinks they'll respond. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Those who have faith and find life amidst this trial and on into the future forever. That's his expression of confidence. He's calling out to them. He's using this passage In the midst of this pressure and this hardship, have faith, embrace Him, cling to Him and you will preserve your soul. You will find life. But the threat is there too, is it not? Don't shrink back and be destroyed. He doesn't think they'll go that way, but the threat is there. Don't shrink back and be destroyed. He knows very well that this trial in their life, as trials in all of life, that this trial is going to press them. It's going to show who they really are. And he's calling out to them, don't shrink back. Now, don't get your mind wrapped around a pole and think too hard about, can I shrink back or not? Is that actually possible? Would that be losing my salvation? I don't know if I can do that, actually. 
That's not the point. There's just two things said to you here. He speaks to the church and he says, have faith and have life. Don't shrink back and die. He doesn't talk about all the theoreticals. The point is you're supposed to say, I don't want to die. I don't want to shrink back. And you embrace him in faith. Do that. Brothers and sisters, grab hold of him in faith. Persist in that. That's where you find life. Hold tight to him. Trials are going to come and they are going to challenge you. The trial is going to show who we really are. Consider for a minute a statement that you may well know, written by Thomas Paine in the year 1776. A couple days before Christmas, a couple days before Washington crossed the Delaware River and see that famous painting and fought the Battle of Trenton. He wrote a little pamphlet called The Crisis. And he began, These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Then he goes on to talk about the revolution wrote that a few days before Washington's army crossed the Delaware, they said that you could track the army by the blood in the snow because the men were all barefoot and the ice cut their feet as they marched off to battle in the night. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot were long gone. The only people there were the people who were committed to the cause. Are you committed? trial will come and it will weed out the sunshine patriot and the summer soldier. Genuine faith, though, finds life. Genuine faith finds life. Steadfast, wholehearted, surrender of self finds life. Have that kind of faith. Any other kind of faith is not faith. Do not shrink back, but embrace Christ in persistent trust. Genuine faith leads to life. Trust Him and don't shrink back. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.